people. But that's the highlight of my week, so I'm glad that the Lord restored me to health and I'm able to be here today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be reading this morning, the first section of the chapter. We're going to start at verse 2 and read down through verse 16. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 2, reading down to verse 16. So if you follow along, the Bible says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, have his head, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But it be a shame for a wo- but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, other neither the churches of God. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Our Father, we need your help right now as we come before you looking to learn from you. We are weak and finite creatures with finite understanding, and so we need your spirit to guide us as we study your word together this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our understanding, that you would see and help us to understand these things that you want us to learn today. Lord, may your spirit guide us into all truth as you have promised helping us to put these pieces together so that we can see the big picture of what you want to teach us today. Lord, I pray that you would use me now. Just give me strength. Help me to be your instrument and just speak through me your truth so that we can be encouraged and exhorted and uplifted through your word. But most of all, we want to give you glory. So I pray that your name would be exalted. May you accomplish your purpose during this time. We'll give you praise and glory and honor now. And we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We have been studying the last several weeks, looking at what the Bible says about women in ministry. And just as a quick review, um, I'm going to give you a couple of points that we've kind of settled on or come to the conclusion of as we've looked at women's ministry. And these are in no particular order. Um, But it's important to remember these things because these are what the Bible teaches about women in ministry. First of all, we saw that women have a multitude of opportunities to minister in the church. There are all kinds of areas that women can serve and can minister within the church of God according to his plan. If they will accept the roles that God has given them. Okay, that's the important part. 
And that leads us to the second point, which is all of the women's ministry or all of women's roles in ministry in the church must fall within God's context of the preordained authority structure that he has established, defining different roles for men and women. doesn't mean they're unequal before him. It doesn't mean that men or women are of more or less value than each other before God. It just means that God has given us different roles to fulfill, especially within the church and within the family. And then based on that and all of the things that we studied, especially from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we see that the one area that women cannot participate in is to lead the church as elders or in teaching ministry over men and taking that authority over men. That Paul prohibited. So last week, we looked at how women have the opportunity even to serve as deaconesses, okay? Because it's a serving ministry. And so there's opportunity there if they meet the qualifications, obviously, and as long as they don't use the authority or the position to usurp the authority over men, as God has told us. So that brings us kind of, this is hopefully our last message, at least for now, on women in ministry. It brings us to the question of, what about women and prophesying? Okay, where does that fit in to this whole thing? Because the Bible talks about women prophesying. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, when the women prophesy, pray or prophesy. Okay, so Paul refers to women prophesying and praying here. And the question is, what is he teaching in this passage? Now, you could take several different perspectives or viewpoints on this and approach it from different directions. You could approach it from the whole perspective of, should women wear head coverings in worship, okay? It could be, should women pray and prophesy in public? It could be, what is God's authority structure? Because that is taught in this passage. So there's a lot of different avenues that you can approach this passage from, but I want to look at this passage more closely because this particular passage of Scripture is a foundational passage that people who believe women can preach and be elders will go to and start with. And they'll use this verse, especially verse 5, when Paul says that the woman, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Okay, they basically focus on the women praying and prophesying, and they use that statement or part of that statement to say, well, see, God has ordained women to preach and to lead because they can prophesy here. But you can't take that phrase outside of its context. You have to look at the entire passage to see what Paul's teaching here. So that's what I want to do this morning, is look at this passage specifically, these 15 verses that we read. And I want, to, I want you to see three things that are very important to understand about this passage, to understand the message that Paul's giving us. Okay? Here's the three things very quickly, and then I'm going to explain all three of them through the message this morning. Number one, there is a biblical allowance for women prophesying in this passage. Paul assumes that in verse 5. He says, when women pray or prophesy. So there's allowance that Paul gives for women to prophesy. The question is, under what circumstances? And what does that mean to prophesy? We'll answer those things. Number two. This passage is more about God's authority structure for uh, ministry than it is about women's dress or ministry, the specific things they can do in ministry. This passage was written with a focus on 
the authority structure that God has ordained. It does talk about head coverings. It does talk about women prophesying and praying, but those are secondary to the main message. Okay? That we have to understand. Number three, in order to fully understand this passage and what the message is Paul's giving us and get the correct interpretation and application, we have to put it in context, not only with the chapter and the book that it's in, but with everything else that we've studied. Okay? So those three things are important, and we're going to take some time this morning to look at those three points as we go through this passage. So first of all, Paul assumes that women prophesying is a common thing in the early church. So there is allowance for it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We can't just write off and say, women can't prophesy, women can't pray. Paul says, when they prophesy or pray. So he's assuming that they do. But let's start with the basics here and say, okay, what are we saying? I think we all understand what prayer is, I hope. As believers, we we should have a, a grasp on what prayer is. But what is prophesying? That is not a word that we commonly use in churches today, at least in in, uh, conservative churches. It's used in charismatic churches a lot, but I think they misuse the word and misuse the function of what it's supposed to be. So we need to define this word prophecy. When we speak of the word prophecy, we're talking about the gift of prophecy here, as far as the foundation of it and what that entails when we're talking about how it's used in the church, okay? So the gift of prophecy, or what you would call a word of prophecy, we're talking about a very simple definition, and here it is. It is human declaration of divine revelation. In other words, I, as a human, am speaking God's words. That's a simple definition of prophecy. So in other words, it's divinely appointed people called prophets, and there's many of them listed in scripture, or prophetesses as the case may be, and we'll look at that in a minute, speaking in the place of God. Now I want you to differentiate here between prophecy and preaching because there is a difference. Here's some examples of prophets in the Bible, and you're familiar with these. Moses. Moses was a prophet, and he was considered to be a great prophet. He was the, one of the greatest prophets in Israel. Um, there were the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of those prophets. And then you have the minor prophets like Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Okay, those were all considered to be prophets, and they were speaking God's words. There's a difference. The difference is they were not explaining or applying. They were speaking the actual words of God. And so basically, this idea of prophecy is, thus saith the Lord. That is God's words, a human agent speaking God's words. So biblical prophets like Moses and Isaiah, received new revelation from God, which they then reported to people. And they would speak the words of God to the people. This is what God said. And so when you look at this actual term prophet, it comes from the Greek word prophetes, which means to speak in the place of or to be a spokesman for. So a prophet or one who speaks prophecy is just speaking for God. Okay, it's important for us to understand that. So there's a good definition of a prophet. Someone who is a spokesman for God. Now, they speak the exact words of God. We have to get this point. 
It's not a commentary. It's not an explanation. It's not an application. It's speaking the actual words of God. That's what prophecy is defined as. And it's an important point because when someone exercises or claims to exercise this gift of prophecy or to prophesy in the name of the Lord, they are in essence claiming to say these are God's actual words. Now, we have to test then whether those words are truly from God. And the Bible gives us three criteria for identifying a true prophet. First of all is what we would call the test of doctrinal orthodoxy. In other words, does what they're saying agree with what everything else that God has told us in his word? Especially now in our, um, in our situation, we have the written revelation of God here. So anybody who says, I am a prophet, here is prophecy from God, it has to agree with what we have here as far as the revelation of God and his word. Okay? When God was giving revelation through prophecy in the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well, it was new revelation or new truth in a sense, but it always agreed with what he had given before. It built upon that, but it always agreed with what God had said. So that's the first test. It's doctrinal orthodoxy. And God gave Israel and the church a warning about prophets who speak And their prophecy does not agree with other truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, God says, anyone who tempts Israel, he's talking to Israel, anybody who tempts you to go after other gods, even if they do signs and wonders, and if they claim to be a prophet, God says they're false prophets, and Israel was to purge them from their midst. So if it disagreed with anything else that God said, or if their words would lead people away from God, God says they are false prophets. They are not speaking my words, they're speaking their own words. First Peter, or Second Peter, Peter echoes the same uh, sentiment into the church. And he says in Second Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, there's false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be pro- false prophets among you. He's talking about Israel and now the church. Who shall privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So we are warned about false prophets. They have to agree and be in concert with everything else that God has said. And they cannot lead us away from God. They have to lead us to God. So if they're speaking God's actual words, obviously that would be God's intent, to lead us to him, not away from him. So that's the first test, doctrinal orthodoxy, or agreement with God's truth that we have. The second test is moral integrity of their life. When you look at the prophets of God, obviously they weren't perfect. But as we study the prophets in Scripture, we see that their life was characterized by moral integrity and holiness. That was what they lived, because they were representing God on earth. And so their lives had to speak about God as much as their words had to speak from God. So those who claim to be prophets of God have to live God's truth out in their lives. It's not enough just to speak truth that sounds good. It has to be in action. Now you're starting to see a little bit of parallelism here with the qualifications for elders and leaders in our church. Okay, Prophecy is a huge important thing if we are going to claim that it can be useful to God's church today. It must follow these guidelines and it must 
fall into concert with everything else that God has planned for us as far as his church is concerned. So he says, their lifestyle, look at their lifestyle. What did Jesus say? By their fruits you shall know them, right? So if someone is speaking something that sounds good, but you look at their life and it's a wreck, and they're off in never, never land spiritually, they're not a prophet of God because their lifestyle will agree with what they're teaching if they are truly a prophet. Jeremiah 23, God tells Israel, the prophets of Israel at that time were committing adultery and walking in falsehood. Now, they called themselves prophets, but God says, no, they're false prophets. They're not giving you my words. They're giving you their words, and they're not helping you at all. And again, we read 2 Peter chapter 2. If you go on to the next verse, we read 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. There are a lot of people on TV today who call themselves prophets of God and who have a word of prophecy from the Lord. And you listen to what they say, and then you look at their lifestyle, and they are sapping the money and goods from poor people who are desperate to find truth and living the lavish lifestyle of a millionaire while other people suffer. That's exactly what Peter describes here as a false prophet. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that a pastor or an elder or someone teaching the word of God can't have money. But I'm saying when the prophet or the preacher, whichever case may be, is using people to make himself rich through what he calls ministry, there's a real problem with that. Remember when we studied elders, one of the first qualifications is not a greedy, a filthy lucre. In other words, they're not motivated by money to do this ministry. Okay? The same is true for prophets. If, you, if it's truly a prophet of God who's giving prophecy from God, their lifestyle will match the truth of God that they're speaking. And if you look at all the Bible prophets, they weren't rich people and very famous in the world. They were basically very poor. I mean, you look at Elijah. Elijah had to spend most of his life running in the wilderness because he was being chased by Ahab. Okay? It's not about my own profit, my own comfort. So if you find somebody who has a ministry of prophecy and, it's, and they're building up their own comfort and their own lifestyle, that's a problem. Okay? God says, no, their lives have to reflect the holiness and the character that I want in a person who's leading the church and in, in, in uh, representing me on this earth. Okay, so that's the second one. The third uh, characteristic or the third qualification for a prophet is what we would call predictive accuracy. Let me ask you this question. If they are truly speaking the actual words of God in prophecy, how often do they have to be right? 100%. That means if one thing they say is not true or doesn't come to pass, God marks them as a false prophet and he says, you are not speaking for me. 100% accuracy is the qualification. And if it's not 100%, they are not speaking for God. Because God is never wrong. 
Okay? Now, again, modern-day prophets that you see on TV, and I'm not going to give you names, but you can go look it up. They will claim that we are just humans, and humans make mistakes, and even the spiritual gift of prophecy that we have, we can be wrong a lot of the time. Not if they're speaking for God. So God says 100% accuracy. It has to be, because if it's God's words, it will never be wrong. In Deuteronomy 18, God says to Israel, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, or even that, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him or follow him. Okay? God says it has to be completely accurate. And if they're wrong, do not listen. Don't follow him. Ezekiel 13 God talks about prophets, and by that time, Israel was a mess. The prophets were, were false. All of them were false prophets, basically, for the most part. And God says, they speak as from the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. He says, they hope that their prophecy will come true. And in hoping, they try to cause others to believe their lies. And this is the language of the Lord speaking about these kinds of people who call themselves prophets. And God says, They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord God. So God is very specific about prophecy and about people who call themselves prophets. Now, if I was called to be a prophet, I would look at that and be shaking in my boots. Because I would be afraid to say anything, really, if I didn't know that it was definitely from God and these are the words of God, and I wouldn't change a thing. Because when God says, you've spoken presumptuously and therefore you will die, that's harsh. But that's God's standard. Okay? So the Bible requires 100% accuracy with the prophets. And here's the question, if it's that clear in Scripture, why do so many churches and even Christians, groups of Christians today, justify prophets that regularly speak error or speak things that don't come to pass, and they still accept them as prophets? I mean, basically, the average is about, if, you, if you're 25 to 30% right, yeah, yeah, you can be a prophet. You know, I can close my eyes and throw darts at a board and hit that much. It doesn't, doesn't take much to be 25 or 30% correct all the time. But 100%, that has to be from God. And so God says, that's when you know that I'm speaking through this person. So it's something we can count on. So when we discuss this idea or subject of prophecy, you have to start with a biblical foundation and a definition of what exactly that we're talking about and what we're dealing with. Prophecy is speaking the exact words of God revealed to man through a human agent as a spokesperson. That's what we're talking about here, okay? The gift of prophecy, then, is not the same as teaching and preaching. It is a different idea altogether. So when you look back into Bible times, prophecy was necessary. God speaking through people because they did not have this 
we have God's revelation to us recorded. For the most part, we agree this is the revelation of God. It is complete. We have all the truth that God wants us to have as Christians, and we have everything that we need right here for us to live and sustain our Christian lives. Okay? So we have God's completed scripture. So there's really not a need for new revelation from God as far as new truth. We have all the truth we need right here in scripture. So we're not talking about preaching. We're not talking about teaching. We're talking about God revealing truth through a direct communication with a man who then directly communicates that truth to, to other men. So we really don't have the need as today as they did in the Bible times. And I'm going to say that with this. If you basically say, yes, we have the same need today that the early church did or that the Old Testament did, then basically what you're saying is, Scripture is not enough. And so we deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, if this isn't enough, then we have a problem. Okay? I think God has given us everything that he wants us to understand right here in his word. We have everything we need, as I said, to live the Christian life, to understand what salvation is, to understand God's plan for our lives and for the world. It's all here. And so we must hold to the sufficiency of Scripture that it is enough for us. In fact, I could go to Psalm 19 and argue just from Psalm 19 and a few other passages that the Old Testament was enough. Remember, that's all the early church had was the Old Testament. The early preaching of Peter and Paul specifically took Old Testament passages and then laid them out for people to understand <coughs> Excuse me, that everything that God had planned as far as salvation was all revealed in the Old Testament. The people just didn't understand it. And Jesus fulfilled that picture. And so now in the Old Testament, we see Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Messiah, of everything that God talked about. They just didn't want to see it that way because they had their own agenda. They weren't looking for a spiritual deliverer. They were looking for an earthly king, and he wasn't ready to do that yet. But there's enough in the Old Testament for us to understand God's plan for us. The New Testament explains the Old Testament. That's why we have the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it basically tells us everything that we saw here was just a picture of what we have now and what we have in Jesus Christ. So the Bible gives us everything that we need. And if you deny that the Bible is sufficient for us as believers, that we need new revelation, we need new truth, then you open the door to the golden plates of Joseph Smith from Mormonism. Do we reject that? Well, it's new truth, right? Or what about the Quran of Islam? Do we reject that? That's new revelation. Well, we can say, well, yeah, I know, but that doesn't agree with Scripture. So what you're saying is, Scripture's enough. Because if it doesn't agree with Scripture, this is our standard. Why do we need new truth? And the Quran and Joseph Smith's golden plates of Mormonism don't agree with Scripture, and that's why they're not accepted as God's revelation. Okay? So we have to accept the sufficiency of Scripture and say God has given us all the truth we need right here. He's not going to reveal to us something new that we don't have through a prophecy 
so that we can continue learning these new things. We don't need to learn anything new. We need to learn what we have. Now, how many of you know everything that's in the Bible? Okay, so we're still working on this one, right? God's given us enough truth to keep us busy our entire lives, and we're not even going to get a fraction of everything that's here. So God doesn't need to give us new truth. So when we talk about prophecy, what we're talking about is God revealing truth. We have prophecy written down for us in Scripture. That needs to be sufficient for us. So we don't have the need, like the early church did, or the people in the Old Testament did, for God to reveal his truth to us, because it's all been fulfilled in Christ, it's all been recorded for us here, and we have the whole picture. That was God's plan for us. Now, with all that being said, we still have to allow for prophecy within the New Testament church, because Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But only as it fulfills God's purpose and adheres to God's truth and God's guidelines. Okay? So we're going to take all of what I just said. This is the first point that God allows for this in 1 Corinthians 11, but we have to put it in the context of everything else that we've studied. Okay? So we must assume, number one, that women were allowed to prophesy in the early church because that's the position that Paul takes here in 1 Corinthians 11. Second of all, The purpose of this whole passage that we see in 1 Corinthians 11 is not to instruct about when women are to wear a veil or head covering. It's about the authority structure of God that he has ordained in the church. As Paul discusses head coverings here, all of what he says is in the the context of authority of the men over the women. Okay, Look at verse 3. He says, But I would have you know the head of every man is Christ, The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Now, I don't know if you could get any more clear authority structure than that verse right there. God said it. These are his words. Paul was writing this under the inspiration of uh, of Holy Spirit, and we have this as the direct revelation of God to us. So Paul is defining here the authority structure that God has given us. God is the father uh, God the father is the head of Christ Christ is the head of man man is the head of woman and is talking about authority okay so there's nothing unclear about that go on to verse 4 he says every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonoreth his head what does that mean does he dishonor his actual head no look at verse 3 he uses the word head as a representative of authority in their life. So what Paul's saying in verse 4 is, every man prophesying or praying, having having his head covered, dishonoreth his authority. Now you go, okay, well I understand that, but why do the Jews wear the little yarmulke then? Well that started about the 4th century, and actually that would completely go against what this verse teaches. Okay? It came out of a rabbinical tradition, not out of scripture. So I can't agree with them to wear a head because the Bible is very clear here. You don't have your head covered because it dishonors my authority. Now, it goes on and it says, The woman, if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonoreth her head. Who's her head? Who's her authority? Man. Yeah, her husband, specifically. Okay? So Paul gives an authority structure right here at the beginning of this explanation. And in verse 8 and 9, if you go down to verse 8 and 9, he again refers to this authority 
based on the creation. He says, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That's that, uh, that creation order again. God took the rib of Adam and made woman after he made man. So there's an order of creation which establishes an order of authority. So there's the whole passage here is focused on the authority structure that God has given us for men and women. Now, I'm going to stop here just to remind us. It doesn't mean that God intends for men to dominate women and to rule over them like tyrants. That's a misuse of the authority. The authority God's given to men is in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives. In other words, take care of them, serve them, do what's best for them. That's what your life is all about, is serving other people. You take the lead in that. You don't wait for other people. You don't do it only if your wife does it. You are the lead. You take the lead in showing how God wants us to live as Christians. And it tells the wife, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. In other words, look at his example as he follows Christ and you follow him. Okay, so that's this authority structure. And as we talked about the creation of woman, we saw that she is made to be in a support role. That's, that's what God has ordained. So that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why the head coverings then? If you look back into Bible times when this was written, almost all of the Mideastern cultures, in all of them, the women wore some kind of a veil or shawl. In fact, if you go to the Mideast now, many of them still do, okay? They wore a shawl or a veil. When they went out in public, they would put it up over their head. And you probably have seen pictures of a a Muslim woman with the burqa, and basically their entire head and face is covered except for their eyes, okay? That came out of this tradition that was part of this culture in the Mideast. So this is not specific to Christianity, What that veil or covering uh, communicated to people was that I am a married woman and I am submissive to my husband. That was the message of the veil or the head covering through all of the culture. And Paul goes on and he says, if a woman have long hair, it's a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for covering. He speaks about the long hair. But then he says... um, I'm sorry, in verse 12, for the woman... uh, No, I missed it. Oh, verse 6. I'm sorry, I jumped way ahead of myself. Verse 6. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. That reference is to women who rebelled against this authority, specifically the prostitutes of the time who would uncover their head to give the message to men, and many times they would shave their head, the priestesses in the, in the pagan temples did, but they were giving people the message, specifically men, the message, I am loyal to no one, I belong to no one, and so I'm free for anyone to have. That's what the uncovered head symbolized in this culture. And so when Paul talks about head coverings, he's not saying... For all time, it's wrong for you to go to church without your heads covered, women. He's basically talking about the principle of submission, and he's saying whatever you do, you must stay in submission to your husbands. And in this culture, the symbol was that veil or that head covering that they wore. It was a regular practice. In fact, if you go back in Jewish history, when the women would go into the synagogue, they would pull the shawl up over their head if they didn't have it on already. Okay? So this is not about 
a piece of clothing. This is all about the authority structure that God has ordained for men and women, especially within the church. Paul MacArthur goes on and he says this, In many Near East countries today, a married woman's veil still signifies that she will not expose herself to other men, that her beauty and charms are reserved entirely and exclusively for her husband, that she doesn't even care to be noticed by other men. See, that's the principle of modesty. And we can go, you know, miles with that one. But it's someone who is married specifically here demonstrates that authority structure by being submissive through the use of the veil. That's what this passage is talking about. So by removing the veil, the woman basically is declaring that she was rebelling against the authority of her husband in seeking to do things her own way and basically making herself available to whoever was interested. So women in the Corinthian church, obviously, were not covering their heads. They had this sense of newfound freedom where, oh, we, you know, we're free in Christ, ah, we can do whatever we want. And you read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and you can see that all over the place. In fact, in chapters 8 and 9, he specifically takes a whole bunch of time to talk about Christian liberty, specifically in the area of eating meat offered to idols, but the principle applies to our lives completely. All right, so Paul's purpose in writing this passage was not specifically to give commands about a woman's dress in church, but as a statement about not abandoning God's ordained authority structure for men and women within the church. And Paul's saying we can't abandon God's authority structure of the man leading women and women serving in a support role, remembering that both are equal before God, but both have different roles. Okay? So that's the second principle. This passage is all about God's authority structure, not about a piece of clothing. Number three, we have to remember and understand the context that this is written in. Okay? Now, I know we've gotten kind of off away from prophesying, but I'm going to bring it back to prophesying because Paul mentions prophesying in this passage. That takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And you don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 34, Paul makes this statement after giving a long discourse on tongues and prophecy, and he says in verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. We've talked about that passage. God's authority does not permit women to speak in the context of tongues or prophecy or leadership and preaching. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Very clear. He echoes that command in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, let the woman learn in silence. They are not permitted to, use, to speak or to usurp the authority over men. Okay? So twice, we've already talked about that, and that's why women are not allowed to be elders and stand up and preach and teach. But as we look at 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, but... Every woman, in verse 5, every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So is Paul contradicting himself is the big question. He allows for prophecy from women in chapter 11, but in chapter 14, he says women are to be silent. They're not supposed to speak. How does that all work? It seems like it's a contradiction, okay? First of all, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have to assume that the authority structure we've seen all through Scripture still maintain, is maintained here. All right, so God, Paul is not saying 
Well, in this circumstance, we can abandon everything that we've been taught. He teaches the authority structure in this passage. Okay? To explain the apparent contradiction, we have to look a little closer at this text. And here's where you have to put it in context. When you read a passage, don't just read the passage and assume you understand exactly what that passage is talking about. You have to look what comes before it, what comes after it, who it was written to, why it was written, when it was written, and what they're actually saying, and how the people they're writing to would receive it. Now, the reason I give you the background about the culture is because that's the culture these people lived in, and that's how they would understand this. We have to understand it the same way. So let's put this passage in context. We read verses 2 through 15 about head coverings and authority. Look at verse 16 and 17. If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, or he's actually saying no other custom, neither the churches of God. So he's saying this is a universal. The principle of authority is a universal. Okay? And because this representative uh, head covering shows your submission in the culture you live, you must continue to do it. And we don't have any other practice in any of the churches. Verse 17, he says this, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Verse 16 through 18, I'm sorry, verse 17 and 18 is a transition. He's changing gears here, okay? And we have to understand this to be able to get the context. Now, here's one thing I have to remind us. When God ordained scripture and he had these people write this, these passages for us, Paul didn't sit down with his pen and paper and go, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul just wrote out the letter. There were no chapter and verse divisions when Paul wrote this. People have put those in, the translators have put those in to help it break it up for us so we can understand it in particles. But the verses and chapters are not inspired, the divisions, okay? The message is inspired by God. So in the middle of chapter 11, what we have is Paul transitioning. There's a change of perspective here. So what he says when he says, first of all, in verse 18, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. In verse 17, he says that when ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now he's transitioning from talking about one scenario to another. The second scenario he's transitioning to is the official, formal gathering of the church. That means before that, he's not talking about the official, formal gathering of the church. And if you go back through 1 Corinthians and you look at the passages in context, in chapter 6, he talks about taking brothers to court. In chapter 7, he talks about marriage and divorce. In chapters 8 and 9, he talks about living in Christian liberty. In chapter 10, he talks about avoiding idolatry and giving glory to God in how you live. In chapter 11, he begins with head coverings. And then he makes this transition and he says, now we're going to talk about when you come together as a church. And then he goes on the rest of chapter 11 and talks about participating in the Lord's Supper together as a gathering of a church. In verse 12, he talks about how we're supposed to use our spiritual gifts within the church. 
Chapter 13 is the love chapter. It is stuck in the middle of two chapters talking about using spiritual gifts in the church. And he says, if you don't use love as the motivation, then anything you do in the church doesn't matter. Chapter 14, he comes back to using spiritual gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy, in the church. And that's where the prohibition for women prophesying or speaking it, basically at all in leadership or teaching, is given because it's within the context of the church, the meeting of the church. And at the end of chapter 14, he says, therefore, do all things decently and in order. He's talking about when we gather as a church. So verses 17 and 18 in chapter 11 are transition. So there's not really a contradiction here. When Paul allows for prophesying in chapter 11, it's outside of the assembly of the church in normal life. They didn't just wear veils in the church. They wore them everywhere they went. And so it fits if you put it in the context of the rest of the book. So there's not a contradiction Paul allows prophecy, women to prophesy and pray in public, in their normal lives, but not prophesying and speaking in tongues in chapter 14 when the church is gathered. Okay? So that's important for us to see, to understand what Paul's saying. Otherwise, there's this huge contradiction we can't reconcile. But when you look at those two verses... It's actually pretty clear. Now, one of the things we have to remember is that we can't, I'm sorry, I got lost here, but we can't confuse prophesying with preaching. I already explained that, but this is huge. Prophesying is speaking a word of God directly. What I'm doing, preaching, is explaining, teaching, It's two different things, okay? So this, by application, we remember that God allowed it in the early church, outside of the church, still within his authority structure. So by application, we assume that this was the case in the early church. Women were prophesying outside of the assembly. They were prophesying, and if you use our guides that we've used for teaching, they were prophesying mainly to women, Probably. Now, I can't substantiate that, but according to everything we've studied, that seems to be their main ministry to women. Let the older women teach the younger women, right? So their prophesying could have been to mainly women. Now, there are instances when they could have been prophesying to men. In fact, we will see an example of that in just a second. But it was outside the formal worship service of the church when men were present and were leading as God had ordained in his authority structure. All right? So, we don't know what God said to the women in Scripture who prophesied. There are very few occasions, I'm going to go through them very quickly here, but there are very few occasions where God actually recorded a woman's prophecy. He may have spoken directly through women. He probably did. We have evidence of it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have evidences of prophetesses all through Scripture but we have very little of what they actually said. All of Scripture was recorded and written by men, by the apostles, specifically in the New Testament, and those who were associated with the apostles. So we don't have a record of everything that God directly revealed, not just to women, but to men, 
in prophecy. There are many people who prophesied in the Bible. We have no idea what they said, okay? For instance, in Numbers 11, we read about the 70 elders of Israel prophesying. That's all it says. It doesn't say what they said. Saul, King Saul, prophesied at least twice in his life. Do you have any idea what he prophesied? Doesn't record it. Let's, let's get extreme. Jesus Christ would be the, the supreme example of prophecy because he literally was speaking the words of God. Everything he said was the words of God to men. And yet the Bible tells us specifically that not everything he said was recorded. And if we had to fill, I mean, we could fill the sky with all the things Jesus said and did, and it still wouldn't cover it. Okay, John uh, 21 tells us that. So not all prophecy was recorded, because not all prophecy was applicable to all men. Many times, prophecy was specific to individuals, and that's all the, the, where it would apply to that person. And so there were opportunities, I believe, in Scripture where women prophesied to individuals or to small groups outside of the church where it applied to them specifically. Now, many of the prophets, where does their prophecy apply? To Israel. The Old Testament prophets preached to Israel. They prophesied to Israel. Okay? So many of the judgments and the condemnations and the blessings and the promises that God gives them are specific to Israel. The Mosaic Covenant, where God spoke through Moses to give the promises to Israel, that was to Israel. That's not to anybody else. Now, the principles apply. If we obey God, God will bless us. But God's not going to give us a lot of land. God's not going to increase our herds. God's not going to you know, make our families big. Those promises are for Israel, specifically in that time. So not all prophecy applies to all man. We have to understand that. And that's why God doesn't give us all the prophecy that he ever gave through people. God has deemed it not necessary for future generations to have. Now, as far as women, I want to quickly go through a list of women in Scripture and look at the specifics of their prophecy. Okay? We'll start with Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to try to go quickly. If you want to follow along, just move your fingers fast, okay? Exodus chapter 15 talks about Miriam prophesying. This is right after they crossed the Red Sea. It calls her a prophetess or a prophet. Okay? Moses was a prophet. She was his sister. And after they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam, called a prophetess in that passage, gathers the women together, and then they sing this song of praise to the Lord. And it's recorded in Exodus 15. It's one verse long. If you look at the context, it follows Moses' song of praise to God, which is about 12 verses long. So God is basically saying Moses is praising God. Moses is a prophet, obviously. Miriam was also a prophetess, and she praised God in this one-line response to Moses, and they gathered together the women and they gathered together the women and sing, sang this song and danced in rejoicing of what God has given them. That's the only prophecy, if you want to call it prophecy, that we know of Miriam. There's nothing else recorded, but it calls her a prophetess. Okay. Um, in Judges, we go to the, the big one, Deborah. Okay, in Judges chapter 4, Deborah is called a judge, and it says she judged Israel during this time, and she is named as a prophetess. 
And it actually records some of her words to Barak at that place in that passage. And it talks a little bit about prophecy. She's prophesying in a sense because she receives direct communication from God, which she then translates to, Bar- uh, I'm going to keep saying his name wrong, Deborah and Barak, okay? Barak. She communicates it directly to him. But what she says, if you go look in Judges 4, is she reminds him, has not God commanded you that you shall rise up and go against the enemies of Israel? So she's only reminding him of something God has already commanded to him. He already knew this, so it wasn't really new truth. She didn't know it beforehand, but God revealed it to her. So it was prophecy, but it wasn't new. And by the way, that's the only prophecy of Deborah that we have recorded. Okay? No other prophecy is recorded from her, except that when she tells Barak that he has to go and fight against the enemies of God, he says, well, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. So basically, he's being a wimp, and that's the reason God raised up Deborah's, because the men had completely failed. So she's the exception, not the rule. And she says, I'll go with you, but because you're not trusting God and not fulfilling your role, God's going to deliver Sisera, who was the enemy, into the hand of a woman. There's the prophecy. And the story goes that Barak went out and fought the enemies. Sisera tried to escape. He came and hid in Deborah's tent. And then she, I'm sorry, that's a different story. She, she was the one who killed Sisera anyway. Okay, it was delivered into the hand of a woman. So her, her prophecy basically was, you failed, God's given me this word to remind you, and now God's not going to give you this victory. So that's Deborah. And the, other than that, there's nothing else recorded in scripture, okay, about her. Uh, Huldah is named as a prophetess in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. Anybody ever heard of Huldah before? Okay, so she wasn't a very famous prophetess, obviously. Um, king Josiah, you've heard of him. He was the boy king who came to the throne. He realized that the, the kingdom was a mess. And so he tried to restore the worship and get rid of the idols and do all these things. And he did this because he came across scrolls that were written about God's law. And as they were reading them to him, he realized the whole kingdom had gone astray, and so he tried to reconcile that. But he was afraid that what he had done was not enough. And so he sent Hilkiah the priest to find out whether God's judgment is still going to be unleashed on Israel, regardless of all these efforts he's made to restore them to, to, to God. And Huldah is the prophetess that Hilkiah the priest goes to. And actually, in two passages, 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34, we have the prophecy of Huldah recorded. Okay, and basically, what she says is about Josiah. No, God has seen what you've done. God is going to restore peace to your, your land while you live. So you won't see the judgment of God that will come upon this land. Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing. There's a lot more to it than that. But that was the substance of her prophecy. But it was to Josiah. Okay? Uh, We can't come to the end of our skipping our mortgage payments and our house is going to be repossessed and then go, God, I've been doing wrong all my life and you, you fixed this for Josiah, so can you get me out of this? Okay, see, it doesn't apply and work that way. Now, God might deliver us, but usually God is not going to reward our unfaithfulness. Josiah was trying to fix things that he did not propagate. 
that w- were representative of the nation as a whole. But Huldah's prophecy was specifically for Josiah. Okay, so that's Huldah. In Nehemiah 6, there's another woman named Noadiah, who is a prophetess. And she was involved in the time when Nehemiah and Ezra came back and were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. Noadiah was a prophetess who prophesied against Nehemiah. So not all the prophetesses that we see in Scripture are good. In fact, if you go into Revelation chapter 2, the church at Thyatira is criticized and condemned by God because they allowed, and it says, this woman Jezebel, a prophetess who leads people into fornication and idolatry. Not all prophetesses are good. So when you see the word prophet, it doesn't mean they're actually speaking for God. There are lots of false prophets in scripture. Here's two examples of women that were false prophets. So when people hold up and say, well, look, there's women prophets in the Bible. Yeah, there are. But don't use Noadiah and Jezebel as good examples, okay? They're bad. You go on to Isaiah 8. We read how Isaiah went into the prophetess and she bare him a son. We're going to assume the prophetess was his wife. Okay, otherwise God would have condemned Isaiah, but the prophetess is his wife. She's not named and there's nothing ever recorded about what she said, but she's named as a prophetess. The end of Luke 2, we come to Anna, who is named as a prophetess. She, remember, was in the temple when Jesus was brought by his parents at eight days old to be circumcised, to be dedicated to the Lord. He meets Simeon first. And Simeon praises God because he's seen the deliverance of God, the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And then Anna is there, and it says she's 88 years old. She had served in the temple for a long time. And she sees Jesus, and it says she praised God and thanked him for his salvation, and then went and spread the news to other people. That's all we know of Anna. That's the only time she's ever mentioned in Scripture. It doesn't actually say her exact words. It just gives a general account of what she said at that moment. We don't hear of her ever again. So none of her prophecy is recorded. There's one other passage, Acts 21, verse 9, talks about the four daughters of Philip. Remember Philip, the evangelist, he was one of the original deacons, if you want to put that label on it, in Acts chapter 6. But he was an evangelist. His four daughters prophesied. It doesn't give their names. It doesn't tell anything they said. So here's the point. Yes, women prophesied. But not all prophecy is applicable to all people through all time. Not all prophecy is directed at everybody. And not all prophecy, God deems it not worthy of recording for future generations. Because it's not going to be helpful for us. So when you look at these examples and you look at all the other examples of scripture of prophecy, what God has recorded for us as his prophecy is what's important. Lots of other prophecy happened through women and through men. It wasn't recorded because it's not important to us. And that's God's choice, not ours. Okay? So the point is this. Women did prophesy in Bible times. We have to make allowance for that. We have a record of it. But in no case ever do you see a woman prophesying in an official capacity of leadership in the worship of the church or in the leadership of the congregation of Israel. Didn't happen. 
because that's not God's ordained authority structure. Now, I've read all the arguments that people will make about women supposed to be elders, women are supposed to be pastors. You know, we have all these things. Here's the big protest, and I'm going to finish with this. What about Joel's prophecy? Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. If you can get there quickly, I encourage you to look at it. Joel's prophecy about daughters and handmaids prophesying because he does prophesy that. I'll read it for you, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. It shall come to pass afterward, this is God speaking through the prophet. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders unto the heavens and the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be delivered or shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now I read the entire passage because it's important to read the entire passage. So people will go and they'll take that verse that talks about the sons and the daughters shall prophesy, and the handmaids, God will pour out his spirit upon them. It did happen. It will happen. Many Bible prophecies, especially in the major and minor prophets, have two fulfillments. One's called a small short-term fulfillment, and then there's a larger long-term fulfillment. It's just like the Old and New Testaments. The short-term small fulfillment is a picture of what's to come. Okay? That's the case with this prophecy in Joel. Now, this prophecy, short-term, has already been fulfilled. In Acts chapter 2, that's why we read Pentecost this morning. In Acts chapter 2, it gives us the story of Pentecost. And it talks about uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon the people that were gathered in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they all started speaking in tongues. And they went out into the street and started proclaiming the goodness and the good works of God. That's what the, 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 the book of Acts tells us. That's what the people around them heard. Okay, in their own tongue. So they're prophesying basically in an unknown tongue or in a known tongue to the people who were standing around. So that was the event. And many people will look at that and see, well, God started it right there. The women are prophesying. It wasn't in a formal congregation of a church, first of all, because the church didn't exist to that point. They didn't have assemblies of the church. They still went to the synagogue and just did the synagogue stuff. So you can't say, well, here's the example. But it was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, because if you keep reading, which we didn't read this morning, well, we read part of it, verses 14 through 18 in Acts chapter 2, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. He's saying, this is important, please listen. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and then he quotes the verses from Joel. 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter quotes the prophecy and says, you're seeing it happen right before your eyes. This is the fulfillment of that. So that's the short-term fulfillment of that prophecy. Another point we need to understand is this. That prophecy was given to Jews. All of the people that received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost were Jews. All of them. And it says, the people around said, are not all of these Galileans? They were all Jews. So the fulfillment of this prophecy in Joel is for Jews. Here's the short-term fulfillment of it. The long-term fulfillment is about the second coming of Christ. It's after the tribulation, when Christ comes back and destroys his enemies. And if you read the description of the wonders that will happen, there's darkness, the moon turns to blood. You read all about that in Revelation in the end times. So the second fulfillment, the big fulfillment, the final fulfillment of this prophecy in Joel is when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation and destroys his enemies and all Israel will be saved. That's what what, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 11. So this prophecy is specifically to Jews. It's not to the church. Now, many people will say, yeah, well, you got to understand the Jews are not, I mean, they're out of the picture now. God has replaced them with the church. Now, that's called replacement theology, and then you have to spiritualize all the promises in the Old Testament to the Jews and say, well, that kind of applies to us, but in a different way. No, it doesn't. When God promised the Mosaic Covenant to the Jews, that was to the Jews. Okay? We are blessed out of that because God has brought deliverance for all nations through the Jews. We all can experience salvation in Christ. But the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is Jewish. It happened short-term with Jews at Pentecost. It will happen in the long-term at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back the second time and all Israel will be delivered. So that's not a passage that you can go, well, see, God says that women are going to prophesy in the church. That doesn't apply to the church. It It applied to the founding of the church, but it was all Jews there. And it will apply at the end of time when, God, when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, if you believe in replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel, Israel's out of the picture now, I encourage you, go study the book of Zechariah. Okay? If you really take some time to look through that, you, you pretty much have to change your mind on that, unless you're going to just uh, interpret it as you will. Okay? Israel is not, has not been replaced by the church. The church has been grafted into Christ. He's the vine. Paul talks about this in Romans, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, okay? But this prophecy in Joel is for the Jews, okay? And, and that's the way God wrote it. That's the way God gave it. That's who God gave it to. That's how it's going to be fulfilled. We can't extrapolate and say, oh, you know, we're going to get this out of it and apply it however we want. We have to take Scripture the way it's applied in Scripture. We have to interpret Scripture with other Scripture. And again, here's a passage where people will take it and say, well, we're going to use this to support anything that we want to do in the church. Here's the conclusion. I know it's been long. I appreciate your patience. Women did prophesy in Bible times, and God used them in very many different ways. 
They were allowed, and God did use them to say, thus saith the Lord. But most of their prophecy is not recorded. None of it has anything to do with major doctrines of the church or Christianity. Most of it was specific to individuals. Okay? So there's no evidence or examples of women taking leadership in the church or becoming elders or leading in worship or exercising authority over men in prophesying or preaching or teaching, except for the bad examples that God gives of false prophetesses or women uh, working out of turn, taking a role that they shouldn't have. So are women allowed to prophesy today? Sure. Possibly. God can still speak. I don't... I'm going to give you this short description. I am what I would call a cessationist with footnotes, okay? I believe the, this, the miraculous gifts of prophecy and healing and tongues have ceased because we don't need them today, but I will not put God in a box and say he will not ever or cannot ever use those gifts again, okay? If God chooses, he can use the gift of prophecy. He can use a woman with the gift of prophecy, but it won't be in the church in a formal worship service. It won't violate his authority structure that he's given us all throughout Scripture. Okay? So that's where we leave this. Is it possible for women to prophesy? Sure. As long as it's according to Scripture. Okay? And that's the final note on that. Again, it's God's church. We're God's people. We have to do things God's way or we can't expect him to bless us. and, And if we're doing it in our own way, then it's not God's way. Okay? Women have a multitude of opportunities for ministry, but regardless of what they do, they have to maintain their proper roles within this authority structure that God has ordained. I'll leave it at that, okay? If you have questions, I'd be glad to talk to you more. There's so much more I can't fit. I've already gone, you know, over an hour. Uh, I I know it probably feels like that to you guys sitting down. But we're going to finish there. We're going to pray, and then... uh, We'll go on with the rest of our day and our week. Okay, let's have a word of prayer as we dismiss. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have given us your word as absolute truth. And Lord, there's so many questions that we have about life, about the church, about Christianity that we don't understand. You don't explain all of it, but you give us enough in your word to understand what we are supposed to do. And Lord, even in controversial and hard issues like this, I pray that you would help us to stick to your truth and to look at your model and your way, to be faithful in carrying those things out in love, not because we want to dominate other people or because we want to have our own way, but because we're submissive to your leadership and the leadership of Christ, keeping him as the head. Lord, let us be faithful in doing the things that you've called us to, to do them in your way. And we look for your blessing in those things. And we thank you for what you're going to do as we go forward. We praise you. We lift your name up now. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.